turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, as some of your translations may say. It is one of the few parables that Jesus himself interprets. So we'll read the parable and then skip ahead to read Jesus' own interpretation of it. Matthew chapter 13, we're looking at verses 24 through 30 and verses 36 through 43. This is God's word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And now in verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear, that we may understand what you are teaching us, that we may have the hope of everlasting life in a way that shapes the way we live now, that we might live for your glory, be salt and light in a world that needs to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were king for a day of the whole world, what would you do? If you, if you had the power for, for a day to just make everything conform to your will, what would you do? What would you start with? Where would you go first? Would you... Would you fix those little things that always annoy you? Would you address those problems that you hear about in the news? Would you end the wars? Would you bring a stop to the drug trade? Would you end human trafficking? Or would you busy yourself about gathering things for your own enjoyment? Would you make the most of it? It's only for a day. After all, how much can I really do? If you were king for a day, 
What would you address? Would you fix inflation? Would you make sure your football team won the national championship this year? That recruiting class would be really high. What would you busy yourself with? And, And what sorts of things would you do to make sure that your kingdom, if even only for a day, was characterized by justice and righteousness and truth? I'll tell you this, it's, it's an interesting exercise to do, but the whole point of the exercise is nobody's like, if I was king for a day, I wouldn't do anything. I, I would just go fishing. I mean, like I would have all of that power in my hands to order about all the forces and kings and kingdoms of the world, and I'd just sit on that and, you know, I don't know, play checkers or something. Like the whole point of the exercise is what would you do? With all that power. So why is it then that the the Lord Jesus, who isn't king for a day, but is king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever and ever, why is it that it seems like he's sitting around and doing nothing with all of that power? Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Why does disease run rampant? Why is there such a thing as human trafficking? Why is there oppression and injustice and war and bloodshed? Why does he let it go on? Why doesn't he bring justice and righteousness to bear in this world right now without delay? This parable addresses that question. It's a good question. And as we read through it, it forces us to to wrestle with four possible answers to why Jesus delays. And the first is this. Is it simply that Jesus is unjust? I mean, this is a a possible solution that philosophers of the world have put out. I mean, if, if Jesus could do all of this great stuff, and he doesn't, does it just mean he's not as good or as righteous as we think he is? Or that he says he is? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be easier to remove the weeds earlier? I have a bunch of oak trees in my yard, and about every four years, there's this bumper crop of acorns where I have to basically get a shovel. And... and if I don't do something about them, all those little shoots that come up in my flower beds will turn into trees, right? Oak trees right there in front of the kitchen window. It's much easier to pull those little things up early before the root takes hold. That's what the workers notice. Oh no, who's done this? Let's take care of it now before it gets any worse. Why would we let it go on, right? It's like the person that just sticks their fingers in the ears and goes, la, 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 I can't hear any of the problems. Let's do something about it. These weeds are probably something called darnel, which is a, a weed that looks a lot like wheat. The thing about it is, is the seeds from it will, if mixed into the seeds of wheat, utterly ruin 
flower. I mean, it becomes unusable. And there's a a fungus that afflicts darnel that doesn't necessarily afflict wheat that if consumed by humans can be fatal. So like this isn't something to joke around with. This is a serious matter. And it wasn't something uncommon. This was a, a common state of affairs where powers that be would carry out this sort of mischief on one another, maybe for payback, maybe just to get their own prices higher, who knows, but they would do this sort of thing. So this wasn't like an unheard of situation. And it makes sense that the workers would be adamant. Let's get to this now. But the sower doesn't seem concerned, does he? Why? I mean, all, all of these workers, all of this hard work, all of these servants who are eager to do something about this evil that has been done to the master, and he is unfazed and unconcerned. Does he just not care? Is he so wealthy that losing this crop doesn't mean anything to him? Is he so used to having his workers run around and do stuff for him that he just, so what? We'll just, we'll just, I'll just make you work harder at the end. Work harder, not smarter. Is he just, is he just unjust? Was this work perpetrated against him by an enemy as payback for something horrendous that he had done? We don't know. But it doesn't seem like he cares a whole lot to do anything about it right now. And if God doesn't care, why should we? Why should we care about poverty, depression, and injustice, and unrighteousness? If God isn't busy doing anything about it, why should we be busy doing anything about it? Is it simply that Jesus is unjust? Now, some people are uncomfortable with that. No, no, God, God is good. He should be just. And so they try to come up with another answer and they think, well, maybe it's not that God is bad. Maybe it's that Jesus is simply powerless. He's impotent. Maybe that's it. Maybe maybe God means well, but he just couldn't prevent this from happening. The world is a busy place. There are a lot of things going on, and maybe he's concerning himself with more important things or bigger things, and he just couldn't stop it. Our dog, Remy, likes to wait until dusk when we sometimes sit down to watch a TV show to look out the window and start barking loudly at all the things, the deer that are eating my flowers and not enough acorns, the people walking their dogs when it's finally gotten cool enough to do certain things, and, or the squirrels or the birds or whatever it is, moths and bugs. He finds something out there to bark at incessantly, so loud you can't hear anything and you can't stop him. He likes to go out into the backyard during the day and dig, chasing voles and moles, never really catching one, just digging because this is what dogs do, 
right? They dig, they bark. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Not, not without being cruel, anyway. Maybe God just doesn't have the power to fix all the things or to keep all the bad things from happening. There are actually books written about this with this very idea. I mean, is it that he doesn't have enough workers, right? In verse 25, we read that his, his men were sleeping. Like, did he not have enough men that they could work in shifts, that they were so tired? He's clearly got a bunch of people he can send out to do extra work at the end. Couldn't he have had some of those guys, like, be on guard? Was he powerless? It's almost as if he is only able to react after the fact, after things happen. Oh, I don't want to damage the wheat. Um, And he just sort of goes into damage control. An enemy has done this. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to fix it? It's like, I'm not going to do anything. We'll just wait. Wait till the end when it's all sorted out. If God is so weak, can we depend on him? Like, why bother praying if you're not going to ever be sure if God is able to respond? Maybe this is why so many people look to government to fix all of their problems, or counselors, or friends, or money. Maybe this is why we have a culture that just is steeped in manipulation to just get what we want because we figure if we can't ask a good higher power to carry out that goodness for us, maybe we'll just work the system and get the good we want ourselves. If God is so weak, can we depend on him? Is it simply that Jesus is powerless, that he's impotent? Some people don't like that answer either. It's God. He made all the things. Clearly, he's powerful. Why would he make something that he had no control over? It's not that God is unjust. It's not that he's impotent. Maybe he just doesn't know. Maybe Jesus is simply incompetent. Maybe he doesn't realize that the toll this is taking on us. And And this is the approach that many people take. We want answers. We want a reason. Why is the world like this? Is God, give us the reason. As if if we could just see what the reason was, maybe it would make enough sense to us that we'd be like, oh, God, you are so smart. But we ask for the reasons and we search for the reasons. We don't find the reasons and begin to wonder, is there a reason? Or more scarily, is the reason just not any good? Some of you may remember when the World Trade Centers went down. I was in a seminary class, and they called us all out, and we sat in the chapel and watched CNN for the next several hours, just praying, dumbfounded. What is, we, nobody knew what was happening. What is happening? Why? And as time goes on, right, we learn more, even to the point where the, the main 
mastermind behind the whole thing. We found him and we got him. It hasn't made that moment better. It hasn't made that national trauma easier. It didn't bring back those people. It didn't restore loved ones. It hasn't made the world feel safer. If anything, it's done the opposite. Knowing all the answers, all the reasons, all the how did they get here and how did they get control and who planned this and why and for what reason, all having all the answers didn't, didn't feel good, did it? In this passage, we know the reason. The master says an enemy has done this. Like we, we know why. We know why this horrible thing has happened to this field. And it doesn't help. Because evil, evil isn't logical. Evil isn't rational. It's evil. It's not supposed to make sense. And there's no amount of effort that will make it make sense. And even if we could be above it all and sort of see all of the good reasons, it doesn't take away the trauma of the experience. It's like parents taking their little child in for the, their vaccinations, right? Like, we know all the good reasons, but that doesn't do any good for that child who's looking with horror on that needle coming. And they don't want to hear about antibodies and they don't want to hear about immunizations and they don't care. And, and, and as a parent, as you're holding them down, so often there's just this hope that maybe one day they'll grow up and understand and not be completely traumatized by it all. And here we are, traumatized by all kinds of things in this world, and wondering, why doesn't God act now? Doesn't he have a reason? Can't he explain it to us? Or is he just incompetent? And if God doesn't know what he's doing, how can we trust him to guide us through? Maybe AI will help. Or maybe the politicians will figure it out. And in unity and peace, make everything good. Or maybe we'll just doom scroll and numb ourselves to the whole affair and forget that we had the question to begin with. These aren't really satisfying answers, are they? They don't really give us anywhere to go. And underneath them all, there is, there is this underlying question that we have in various and sundry ways and that we express with more or less force. And the question is this, God, couldn't it be done better? If I were a king for a day, Lord, I might do it differently. Here's the thing that this parable forces us to wrestle with. It forces us to wrestle with this question. Is it simply that Jesus is patient? 
And if he's patient, why? I mean, what if it could be done better? What if God could just snap his fingers and get rid of all that's evil? Surely, if he's all-powerful and all-good and completely omniscient and all-competent, this is an easy thing for God to do. To just make his right hand of power work with might. Get rid of all the stuff that's bad. But, But in this view, understand, we are thinking about evil in a way that the Bible does not. We're thinking that evil is 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 something that's easily sorted out, like like the red checkers. Get rid of the red checkers. We'll keep all the others. It's easier to win Connect Four when they're all one color. But evil is so ingrained in everything. Its roots go deep. It's twisted around every little thing, every part and parcel of our existence. That if God were to get rid of every lawbreaker and every source of evil, with the snap of his finger, with the power of his word, what makes us think we would survive the process? What makes us think that evil hasn't so intricated itself, I made up a word, into our hearts that you can't tear evil out of us without destroying who we are? Martin Luther talked about something that the scriptures reveal about God's power that there are two types of power that God wields. He wields right-handed power and left-handed power. We've talked about this before. And right-handed power is that sort of power that we want God to bring to bear on the world right now. Do something now. Get rid of everything that's bad. Tear down all the warlords. Get rid of every malicious thought, every, every slanderous word, every bitter and depraved thought. And there is a conceit with us that we think that we don't have any of those problems, but let's assume that for the minute that we would survive the process. Like, that there's, there's a thing about right-handed power. It, it absolutely wields its will. It destroys anything that would oppose it. It tears down anything that would be hostile to it. There's a part of us that wants that, but there's a downside to that. What happens when you wield right-handed power, say, in your marriage? When you come to your spouse, and just with the force of your will, your personality, or with the manipulation of the money, or with the banging of the table, or the raising of the voice, you exert your power and your will over that spouse to get them to conform to what you want them to do. How long will that marriage last? Nobody, when their boss calls them into their office and has read a list of all the ways they've fallen short and then they're let go. Nobody invites that boss to their next birthday party, right? Like, like that's, not, that's not a relationship that you want to really encourage or foster. The judge that hands down the life sentence. Oh, maybe we hope that there is repentance in the 
the prisoner's heart and life, but they're probably not sending Valentine's Day cards to that judge unless it's, you know, sort of a way to get under their skin. Right-handed power has a way of tearing down and destroying relationships. And you see, the central concern of the master in this parable is the wheat. But if you tear up the darnel, you risk tearing up the wheat too. You risk damaging the crop. You risk destroying the one thing that is important to me. Make no mistake, Jesus tells us in verse 41, he will come again in right-handed power to destroy all evil. There are right and good uses of right-handed power even in this world today. I'm not saying it's bad. God himself wields it. He wields it rightly and justly with holiness and truth. And there is coming a day where he will send his angels and he will set everything right. And all that is evil, all that has brought destruction to God's world, all that has tarnished his image in us will be cast into the fire, into a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in the meantime, God is wielding this left-handed power, this behind-the-scenes power, this slow and patient power that builds something, that builds His people, that grows them, that protects them, that cherishes them, that that will not let them become collateral damage in his war against this enemy. And as great as the devil's power may be, as malicious, and mischievous as his servants might be to do this this horrible work and to spread such evil throughout the world, God will not allow his people to become collateral damage in it. He will do whatever it takes to protect them and not have them be pulled up, but to make it so that they can grow to a place where they can shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is, this, is, this is why when Jesus came, he did not come in the right-handed power that will characterize his second coming. He came in humility and in grace and in truth. He took on the form of a servant. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, taking on himself the sins and the weakness and the failure of his people so that when he does come in right-handed power, they will be counted blameless in his sight. This is why he rose again from the dead to give evidence to the fact that death has no power over him. He could have crushed it with right-handed power, but at what cost? Instead, he crushed it with his obedience to God and is now the first fruits of a resurrection that will characterize all of his people, all who follow after him in faith. What if, this is, this is the point of this parable, what if Jesus was being, is being patient with the evils in this world for you, for your sake, 
for your good, for your everlasting life? What if Jesus' patience makes the opportunity long for all of those that you love so dearly to yet come back to him and be restored to him? What if that patience gives him all the opportunity that he needs to so work in you that you are made more and more fit for his kingdom, more and more ready to shine forth with his glory, with his light, with his righteousness, with his truth. What if the whole reason Jesus is being patient isn't answered with some logic or some reasoning or with silly philosophy, but with relationship? He is being patient and long-suffering for your sake and for mine for the sake of all his people whom he loves, that they might grow to bear fruit and bring glory to our Father. Notice in this parable that the enemy was not able to stop the sower's real purpose. His purpose was to have a bountiful harvest of wheat. And at best... The enemy was merely an inconvenience. And as we read in scripture, as the devil continues to prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour, the scriptures say, stand firm in your faith. Stand fast in God and he'll flee from you. All he can do is make a lot of noise, and bang the table and try his best to wield his right-handed power to bring down the kingdom of God, but it won't work. This is a parable that should give us hope. That we don't have all the answers. Don't understand the way things are all the time. We can't always make sense. Though our hearts are grieved when we see the the fruit that the, the enemy's work is wreaking in this world. We yet serve a God who is faithful. Who is true. Who is almighty. It was just, and nothing will thwart his purposes for his people. And if God can work patiently in this world for good, so can we. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, teach us what it means. To live with patient endurance in this fallen and broken world. As we look to you in hope that you are at work for the good of your people. Draw many to you. And deliver us, O Lord, from the evil one. That we might know and manifest in our words and in our deeds and in our hearts that you, O God, our God, are good and mighty and holy and true. That your kingdom might be exalted above all. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our friend. Amen.